Welcome everyone to the 14th episode in the Adjunct podcast series. My name is Victoria Wadsworth and I'm the Associate Vice President of Brand, Business PR and Customer Experience here at Agilent Technologies. Like most companies at Agilent, we're often asked about who we are and what we stand for. These podcasts aim to address who we are as a business by discussing the values and themes close to our hearts and the hearts of our customers. In each of these podcast episodes, we investigate a specific theme with the help of three experts, all with their own unique points of view. In this episode, we're investigating what is now being coined as the golden age of cancer research, along with a discussion of ongoing milestones and scientific achievements. To lay a foundational understanding, I spoke to the research information lead at Cancer Research UK. I'm Dr. Sam Godfrey, and I'm the research information team lead at Cancer Research UK, the uh, largest cancer charity in the world. Hi, Sam. Thanks for joining us today. Could you start off perhaps by giving us a summary of your background? So I started out as a scientist, so I worked in industry first before I decided I wanted to go into academia and so did the sort of PhD route where my PhD was a sort of kind of applied um, applied immunology, I suppose, trying to treat cancer. And then from that, I went on to a postdoc at the Imperial College, uh, looking at a mixture of neuroscience and engineering. And partway through that, I realised I got an awful lot more joy from talking about the science and uh, trying to get other people excited about the science than actually doing the science myself. So I came into sort of the field of science communication and, you know, it was, it was the right sort of fit for me. And since then, I've been developing at Cancer Research UK. Wow, that sounds like quite a journey. Can you tell us more about your role at Cancer Research UK? So at Cancer Research UK, I lead the research information team. This is a team of 11 science communicators. All of us are ex-scientists. All of us specialise in understanding the latest science, but also the latest policy and health work that the charity are trying to do. And we find ways to communicate that to the variety of different audiences. Um, now, this is a really important function at Cancer Research UK because we're not going to attract new fundraising donations if people don't understand the purpose of the work and can see the progress that's being made. But also, crucially, we're not going to be able to work with with people like MPs or um, you know other politicians or big organizations that could really lend their support to Cancer Research UK and amplify the work we're doing and it is their direct support which is allowing us to see some big steps forward against cancer. So Sam I'm curious to know what Cancer Research UK is doing to ensure more positive patient outcomes. So our charity works with a lot of scientists we do what's called response mode funding basically scientists come to us with ideas and we will fund the best ideas will will you know really drill down to what all those ideas are and only fund the cream of them and the quality of the lung cancer applications we were getting wasn't great and we weren't getting that many of them either i think scientists setting themselves up for a career and perhaps more likely to focus on an area where there's a big research base and we realized that in the uk certainly the research landscape for lung cancer wasn't good enough. So that's when our charity was able to put in some leadership in this space and start to invest in the infrastructure behind it, fun, uh, bringing in great names, big scientific names and persuading them to switch their focus to lung cancer, investing more money into lung cancer, making it known we want more money in lung cancer. And what we've seen is we've seen not just from the work that we put out, but, you know, across the wider community, the investment in lung cancer has increased. There's far more high quality research proposals coming in and uh, far more high quality research outputs coming out. 
And some of the stuff we're now seeing in lung cancer is really exciting. Immunotherapies are looking really promising in certain areas of that. Uh, there's a study called Tracer X, which um, has we've been funding for 10 years now, I think. And that's got to a point where for people with lung cancer, they're able to now predict based on the genetics of their cancer using blood tests with about a 90% accuracy, whether a lung cancer is going to return more than a year before the most sensitive scans can detect it. That's phenomenal because now we can start being proactive, not reactive. We're trying to do the same for some of the other hard to treat cancers. That's so insightful. Thank you. The work you're doing is phenomenal. Why do you think this period has been described as the golden age of cancer research? I think why we're in the golden age of research is that we now know that. We understand so much more about cancer. We understand, you know, some of the major things that go wrong. Examples like, you know, discovering cyclin, uh, discovering cyclins and how they control the cell cycle and how that goes wrong in cancer. Discovering things like P53, which protect the genome. And when that stops working, the cancer is able to rise. All of these fundamental hallmarks of cancer we've built that knowledge base and once you've kind of built that knowledge base it's an awful lot easier to start applying that to actual clinical change but then why it really doubly makes it a golden age of cancer research is that that technology is also now coming through we can sequence entire genomes really really fast we can edit gene edit incredibly quickly with techniques like CRISPR. We've got so many more tools at our disposal. We've got that technology and understanding to finally match our ambition to beat cancer. So I think that's probably why it's being described as a golden age of cancer research. It's also probably why, um, you know, there's, there's, there's optimism in the science community because we've put discovery at the heart of everything. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Sam. It's wonderful to understand more about your expertise through Cancer Research UK. To understand a bit more about scientific advancements, specifically in precision oncology, it's now my pleasure to introduce you all to Dr. Scott Lowe. My name is Scott Lowe. I'm chair of the Cancer Biology and Genetics Program at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and I'm also an investigator in the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Thank you for joining us today, Scott. Please, could you share a little bit more about your professional background? So I received my Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I worked uh, in biochemistry and molecular biology and did research in the area of heart disease. I went on to do my PhD in the MIT Department of Biology, where I began to study cancer and in particular genetic factors that cause normal cells to become malignant. Um, I started my own lab at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on Long Island, where I continued to focus in more depth on cancer genetics. What does your role at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center entail? In 2011, I uh, moved to Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where I now serve as chair of the Cancer Biology and Genetics Program. I oversee directions of the program, which consists of about 10 faculty members. I advocate for cancer biology and genetics uh, in the Institute, and I also run a relatively large uh, multinational research laboratory. And for our audience, could you explain perhaps what precision oncology is? Precision oncology um, is an approach to treating cancer that's really emerged over the last 20 years. Prior to that, um, cancer used to be treated based on organ type, whether it was a breast cancer, a lung cancer, a colon cancer, or so on. Um, and there was huge variability in the responses of individual cancers 
uh, to therapy. Um, because um, most patients were treated with cytotoxic drugs, chemotherapy, um, which really um, had no rationale other than um, being identified empirically, um, it was impossible to know in advance which patients would respond or not. And so why does this approach show so much more promise in developing and deploying new cancer treatments? So precision oncology is taking advantage of some aspect of molecular characterization of the individual cancer of a patient's tumor um, to match um, a drug that would be predicted to work with that sort of makeup. Um, and so rather than treating cancer based on an organ um, or organ site, it's treated based on some molecular change that's in the cancer um, for which a drug is predicted to work. Um, more specifically, I think there's three main factors that underlie precision oncology. Um, we've known for a long time that cancer is a genetic disease. It occurs when there's mutations in certain uh, genes that cause them to act abnormally, uh, leading to cancer. And we often call these cancer drivers. They drive the cancer in the sense that they, they, they are responsible for making it emerge. Um, the second thing we've come to appreciate is that there are different genes that are mutated in different patients' cancer. So there's different drivers um, that give rise to different cancers. Um, and that really is independent of which organ site in these cancers evolve from. Um, the third thing is that we've understood how these drivers work and we can develop drugs that block them. So by understanding which drivers occur in different cancer types, we can find drugs that we can match to those drivers, and that leads to a more effective and durable response. Now, Memorial Sloan Kettering has been a leader in sort of the genetic tests that one uses to characterize individual patient tumors. So the typical way in which precision oncology is carried out uh, these days is the patient gets a biopsy. The biopsy gets sequenced for its DNA to find which mutations exist or, or, or which drivers are present. And then if there's a drug to match that driver, the patient will be given that therapy. Um, and again, uh, that's proven to be extraordinarily effective and almost a mainstay of cancer therapy today. That is truly incredible. What applications and methodologies do you routinely use in your research lab? And what advantages does this offer for your work? So my laboratory, again, based on its historical interest in cancer genetics, um, is really interested in using very advanced genetic tools. Many of us um, are familiar with CRISPR, CRISPR technologies. Um, this has affected you know, all areas of biomedical research. It may eventually lead to new types of therapeutic approaches. And it's a very efficient way in which to alter uh, genes to study their function. And so geneticists, again, an, an analogy that I often used, the way one tries to understand how a gene works is ask what happens if you take it away. <laughs> it's sort of like if you have a car and you don't have a manual, you see a wire, you wonder what it does, you pull it out, well, the car doesn't start. So that means it must be important for the car to start, you put it back, now the car starts, you sort of prove that that was the case. Um, geneticists do that with genes. And so we do this a lot. We alter a gene in a cell, we ask what happens and try to then understand 
you know, is it important for cancer? New technologies, particular CRISPR technology, really allows us to do that at a much more high throughput scale than even five or, or 10 years ago. Another aspect of the work that we do in the lab, I call genomics. This is uh, really something that in most iterations takes advantage of our ability to sequence DNA or nucleic acids at a very, very high throughput. It, it took, you know, 20 years to sequence the first human genome. You know, we can do this in really hours today. And so that technology allows us to characterize the state of DNA, um, the state of transcription of that DNA, how essentially expressed um, the proteins that are produced to really look at great granularity, how a particular gene alteration affects the cell state and, and its biology. So, so genetics and genomics um, are a really important tools that we use um, in, in cancer genetics today. That's really interesting to hear. I love the analogies too. Of all the many accomplishments from your cancer research efforts, which do you feel was the most groundbreaking to date? And please, can you elaborate why? More recently, I mentioned um, one of the processes that we study is this process of senescence, which is, you know, such a fa fascinating piece of biology. Um, you know, it helps us prevent cancer. It contributes to why we age. So this really sort of dual roles of um, uh, biology. But again, I alluded to this before, but a really exciting advance to us was to realize that if you could trigger senescence in cancer cells, which we can do experimentally, and there are drugs that actually do this, although it wasn't well understood, um, you can not only prevent the cancer cells from dividing, but you can provoke their recognition by the immune system. And, and of course, immunotherapy, which is distinct from precision oncology, is really the other great advance in cancer treatment over the last 10 years, um, coaxing the immune system to get rid of the cancer, coaxing our body essentially to reject the cancer um, is a really exciting potential therapeutic approach and, and work from others, certainly not us, um, have shown you can cure many cancer patients um, uh, using this therapy. Um, doesn't work for everybody. And of course, that's what we want to try to make it do. And we think this ability to induce senescence might be one way um, to get cancer cells to be better recognized by the immune system, either um, as its own form of immunotherapy or in combination with the uh, uh, immune therapy drugs that we currently have in place. And so again, that's something I've been uh, quite excited by and, uh, uh, and hope will, you know, over the next few years really lead to meaningful impact on cancer patients. More and more, we're hearing about how we are amidst the golden age of cancer research. In your opinion, is this true? And if so, why? Yes, I absolutely think that, that we're in the golden age of cancer research. You know, I would think of the modern day of cancer research starting in the mid-1980s when it was discovered that gene mutations cause cancer. That was a long time ago, but by understanding what these genes did, how they went awry as a consequence of the mutation, we were ultimately able to develop therapies, these precision oncology drugs um, that can be effective for patients with those mutations. Um, it took another technology, next generation sequencing, to be able to actually analyze cancer patients 
um, to figure out which are the genes that were mutated. And so a combination of our biological understanding um, and new technologies, mostly centered around genetics, really have led to um, this golden age of, of precision oncology. Um, the data that we produce in trying to characterize our patients also gives us great new insights in terms of thinking about what might cause cancer, how cancers evolve, why they spread, why they spread to different organs and so on. And, and so I think that's one factor that's made sort of cancer research in its golden age right now. Um, the other thing which I see is the next 10 years of this golden age um, stems from this intersection of cancer cells with their tissue. And I already mentioned immunotherapy, which is somewhat distinct from precision oncology because it doesn't target the cancer cells directly. It targets the environment that they're in. Again, trying to manipulate that to, to in this case, eliminate the cancer cells. So the tip of the iceberg of research of how um, cancer cells interact with their environment and how we might be able to harness that for therapies that go beyond what we imagine with precision oncology. Um, this really requires understanding gene environment interactions. And these will have, I think, um, really big impact on thinking about the, the next generation um, therapeutics for cancer that, that really try to understand cancer in the context of its tissue and target that specifically. Thanks so much for joining us today, Scott. This really has been such an insightful discussion. Finally, I'll turn to our very own Mark Garner, Global Cancer Segment Manager at Agilent Technologies. Mark, please could you share some of your professional background with our listeners? My academic background is in molecular biophysics. Uh, I got my PhD at Michigan State University doing uh, protein nucleic acid interactions. And then I was an American Cancer Society fellow at the US NIH uh, doing chromatin structure. I was recruited away to the private sector by, at the time, FMC Bioproducts, uh, which is now part of Lanza. Um, and with them, I remember going to the first, um, at the time it was called mutation detection meeting by the Human Genome Organization where people really started talking about what would DNA and mutation analysis look like in the clinic? What would that do to cancer research? What would that do to cancer treatment? Um, and then ended up uh, at, uh, in early, actually late 1999, early 2000, with Cyphergen Biosystems when biomarkers for cancer were just really taking off. This the whole concept of being able to develop biomarkers and kept going with that, got more background in mass spec um, and joined Agilent about two and a half years ago. More and more, we're hearing about how we're in the golden age of cancer research. From your perspective, could you explain what this means, please? So I think the phrase golden age of cancer research was first used by uh, Dr. Norman Sharpless, who at the time was the director of the U.S. National Cancer Institute. And I think really what he meant, at least what I would mean by that, is, you know, we're finally starting to harvest the fruits of decades of, of, you know, some of the brightest people on the planet doing brilliant research 
And now it's starting to really all come together. And the research that we're doing now is based on all of that and harvesting the results of all of that investment, not only monetary investment, but people investing their whole working lives and careers in cancer research, building the foundation that now we're taking into advances which are going into the clinic and understanding the disease so we can develop therapeutic strategies, either drugs or others that, uh, that really make a difference. So would you agree that we're in the golden age of cancer research? And if so, why? Yes, I think we are. And I think the reason is simply that it's starting to make a real difference to patients. Well, that's what it's really all about. The, the phrase that people are talking, or especially the U.S. National Cancer Institute is using, is ending cancer as we know it. How do we turn it into this from this dread disease into something that's manageable? And, and we're seeing those things happen. That's a huge step forward. Could you share a bit more about what role Agilent plays in cancer research? So what Agilent does in cancer research is to try to, to work as closely as we can with the researchers, with the clinicians, with the pharmaceutical companies who are either at the bedside or developing uh, therapeutic, either therapeutic strategies or actual therapeutics in the case of pharma and understand exactly what they need from a technical point of view. It may be a solution that's a new instrument. It may be a different assay on an existing instrument that would require new reagents, new capabilities, and turn that into a reality. So we are working with all of these researchers around the world. Again, some of the brightest people on the planet to understand what they need to fight this war against cancer. And then we try and turn that into a reality so that um, they can do their job. That sounds really promising. Perhaps elaborate a little bit on what immunotherapy is and the value that this form of treatment has brought to patients already. One gets cancer when basically the it's hard not to anthropomorphize, but when the tumor evades the immune system, either by turning, causing it to turn down or, or hiding in some way. And so the concept of immune therapy is to enhance the ability of those, of the immune system and the cells of the immune system to find and kill cancer cells more effectively. That in a nutshell is what immunotherapy is. And so you're essentially harnessing the patient's own body to be able to find the cancer and kill it. And I think that the value of that is once, you know, we really get it fine-tuned, well, you know, the it's much more effective fewer side effects. In early days, as people were still learning how to use it, I think that was more of an issue, but we're getting a better handle on that. And so it's, it's just, you know, the results have been very promising. It, again, it's still relatively early days. There are therapies in the clinic. There are a lot of really bright people uh, taking, it, taking it forward to new kinds of cancers. 
uh, and just amazing things like adoptive cell therapy or CAR T therapy, where you take some of the patient's T cells, so those immune system cells, uh, take them out of the patient, they circulate in the blood, engineer them so that they're more effective killers. The phrase that people in the field use, uh, you, you turn them into serial killers. And then you infuse them back in the patient and they attack the cancer and, and uh, um, you know, as, a, um, as an enhanced agent, if you will. But it's the patient's own cells. You've just genetically engineered them to be more, uh, more effective killers. Right now, that only works for uh, hematologic cancers, so blood cancers. But there's a lot of work on seeing if it can be made to work for solid tumors. And so, the, and that's, I should just mention parenthetically that that was, um, you know, some of the first really rigorous studies were done about 10 years ago. And just recently in the news, there have been reports of several of the patients who were in those clinical studies are still alive and cancer free 10 years later. Wow, that's unbelievable and really encouraging to hear. I'm also curious, Matt, to hear about what challenges researchers in the cancer field are now faced with. I think right now one of the main challenges is integration. You know, immunotherapy, precision oncology, they all involve bringing together an enormous, enormous amount of disparate kinds of data. I need genomic information. I need proteomic information. I need to know how the cell's metabolism is altered by the mutations I see in the genomics. So how do I create that integrated picture going from genomics to RNA expression, to proteomics, to metabolomics, and then understanding what the tumor microenvironment is? How do I create that whole holistic, integrated picture. I think that's the primary challenge now. And how's Agilent supporting its customers in advancing cancer research? You know, we really, I think the most important way that Agilent supports its customers is by trying to be close to them, trying to understand exactly what their needs are. Anticipate new technologies, build it out like our cell analysis, um, systems have wide application across oncology, especially in immuno-oncology. Um, and just if I can give an example of that, our seahorse systems um, were originally developed to look at the metabolism of cells where it's important in cancer. And we now know how important the metabolism of T cells in those immune system cells in fighting cancer is. So having that technology and then developing the applications and the solutions which allow cancer researchers to apply it to the important questions that are right now. So it's being close to them, understanding what those applications are, giving them the technology to do it, and then building the forward technology that allows them to build on for future needs. And how do you see this continuing in the future? You know, we're really committed to supporting cancer researchers, to creating new diagnostics tools. You know, our, our, our DACO has been 
uh, one of the leading names in cancer diagnostics for a long time. Uh, our companion diagnostic uh, group, so we have the companion diagnostic services who work with pharma companies in developing companion diagnostics for, for precision oncology. It's so important that closeness and understanding what people need and building on it. And it's sometimes anticipating what technologies will be needed in the future. Um, but I think having that close relationship, supporting them through our uh, thought leader programs, our ACUR grants, uh, we learn, they learn, and we move the field forward in new knowledge. Thanks for joining us today, Mark. I've really enjoyed speaking with our guests today and learning about the golden age of cancer research we currently find ourselves in. And I hope you've enjoyed listening too. With so many leaps and strides being made within the field, it's great to know that these efforts are having a positive impact already as the good work continues in the fight against cancer. I'm Victoria Wadsworth, and I hope to see you soon for our next episode.